0: Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, taking a little break from the Gospel of John this morning. As you are turning there, some of you might have heard uh, about uh, the judicial sentencing that was handed down this week uh, in the case of Nicholas Cruz. Nicholas Cruz was the uh, shooter in the the 2018 shooting uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School uh, in Parkland, Florida. And on Valentine's Day of that year, uh, Cruz went to his former school and he shot and killed 14 students and 3 faculty members. The murders were were obviously premeditated uh, and as the the case went on and the jury made its determination. They found uh, Cruz uh, guilty, uh, but they would not uh, come to a, a verdict uh, or a sentencing of uh, that he deserved the, the death penalty, uh, instead uh, opting for uh, life in prison uh, without the possibility of parole. Uh, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, this uh, was met with... Uh, Tremendous grief uh, and outrage uh, by the the families of the the victims. That their loved one was uh, shot and and killed, uh, but the one who who took their life uh, is still alive. Situations like these, uh, and many, many others, these types of situations raise uh, a question uh, that we, we all face. Uh, christian and non-christian everybody in the world uh, faces this question of how do we respond uh, to injustice in society right because injustice abounds everywhere because sin abounds everywhere Uh, we commit uh, injustices against others and others commit injustices against us but how do we respond to what is taking place in society and how do we respond to injustice as we experience in our own lives uh, and there, there are many, many uh, answers uh, from the world swirling out there about uh, this matter of injustice and how we are to respond. But I would also say that the Word of God is not silent on this issue. Uh, it has uh, much to say, and indeed, uh, we must build our understanding of how we respond based upon what God's Word says. And as we come to this text in First uh, Samuel chapter 2... Uh, We're going to be looking at verses uh, 11 through 36. And we're going to see in this text uh, that it is a time uh, of injustice. Uh, This is really the time of the judges uh, in the history of Israel. And there are wicked men uh, in leadership uh, in Israel, as we will see. Uh, And uh, injustice uh, and sin uh, is uh, setting the, the tone for the entire nation. But that's what takes place. If the leaders in a nation are unjust and immoral men, all of that is going to to trickle down, and that's what we're going to to see here. And yet we're also going to see that God, even though there are unjust men in leadership, and even though injustice abounds in the society, it doesn't mean that God is not acting to remedy the situation. Won't you read with me, beginning in chapter two, verse eleven, in First Samuel? It says, then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah. But the young boy, speaking of Samuel, the one whom Hannah had promised to serve uh, the Lord all his days, that the Lord would bless her with a son. But the young boy ministered to Yahweh before Eli, the priest. And now the sons of Eli were vile men. They did not know Yahweh. And this was the legal judgment for the priests uh, with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's young man would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork would bring up, the priest would take for himself. And thus they would do in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also before they offered up the fat in smoke, the priest's young man would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting and he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. Then the man would say to him, they must surely offer up the fat and smoke first and then take as much as your soul desires. Then he would say, no, you shall give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. And thus the sin of the young man was very great before Yahweh, for the men spurned the offering of Yahweh. Now Samuel was ministering before Yahweh as a young boy girded with a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May Yahweh establish for you a seed from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to Yahweh. And they went to their own home. And Yahweh indeed visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the young boy Samuel grew before Yahweh. And now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And so he said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the people of Yahweh passing about. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against Yahweh, who can pray for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for Yahweh desired to put them to death. Now the young boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with Yahweh and with men. And then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt enslaved to Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? And why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now, Yahweh declares, far be it from me, For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me will be cursed. Behold, the days are coming and I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will look upon the distress of my habitation in spite of all the good that I do for Israel and an old man will not be in your house all the days. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase of your house will be put to death in the prime of life. Now this will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will be put to death. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul. And I will build him a faithful house and he will walk before my anointed always. And it will be that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. Let's pause and pray. Almighty God, we, we come to your word this morning, seeing your truth, seeing uh, your uh, sight of all men, seeing uh, your judgment of sin. And we would ask and pray that you would help us to see ourselves rightly and help us to s- respond to your uh, word in repentance and faith uh, and in a way that would honor and glorify you. Uh, May you now bless uh, the preaching of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And what this passage shows is how God brought judgment upon the house of Eli uh, because of the the sins of his sons, Uh, and also how God gave hope to his people uh, by delivering them from injustice and by providing them with a faithful uh, prophet uh, and promising them a faithful priest in the future. And as this passage lays out how God has worked in the past, it lays out for us uh, tracks uh, of faith uh, for us to follow, for us to to roll down. uh, Seeing how God has worked in the past gives us hope in the present and in the future that God will continue to work in those same ways. But how can we find hope and encouragement when we are in despair at the injustice that we see in the world around us? Well, this passage is going to lay out five encouragements for us to hold on to uh, when we face and see injustice in the world and in our own relationships. Uh, And and the first encouragement that we see is in verses 12 to 17, that we are to trust that God sees the sins of all men. So verse 12 introduced us uh, to uh, the two sons of Eli. Eli. Uh, And uh, because the the priesthood in Israel was hereditary, uh, they they were the the sons of uh, Eli, the the high priest, which also made them priests. Uh, And verse 12 gives us a description of these young men, and it's a description that should shock and appall us. What what type of description would you want to see accompanying uh, the names of the priests? Pretty sure it's not what we see in verse 12, uh, that they were vile men. Literally that they were worthless. And if you follow that uh, where it's seen elsewhere in the Old Testament, you'll see they are not in good company when they have that description. Uh, but even worse than being vile, worthless men now is that second statement. They did not know Yahweh. They did not know the Lord. Now this is important to think about. What does a priest do? A priest represents a people before God. Uh, they, they are a mediator. The people come to the priest and the priest goes on behalf of the people to God. Now, can a priest do his duty? Can he represent a people before God if he doesn't even know God? Uh, the role of a priest assumes that he has a relationship both uh, with a people and with God himself. But this is a startling statement. These two young men did not even know Yahweh. Verses 13 through 16 then give a a lengthy description uh, of their their sinful habits as priests. Uh, And in short, when uh, somebody would bring an offering uh, to the priest, uh, especially a peace offering, a peace offering was intended to uh, be a a fellowship meal uh, by the one who's bringing the offering uh, to God. Uh, And there was a certain portion of it that was to be uh, burned up and given to the Lord. There was a certain portion of it that was saved for the priests. Uh, But when the people are bringing these offerings uh, to the priests, uh, the priests are actually taking everything. Uh, They are stealing what is not theirs. They're stealing from the people uh, the food that they should be able to have and eat in fellowship with others. Uh, And they are stealing what should also belong to God. Uh, they have completely disregarded everything that God has commanded about how these sacrifices were to take place. Uh, and they are just taking, taking, taking whatever they want. They are men driven by their own passions. And this is also seen in verse 22. Because what else is said there? That Eli knows the report about his own sons in the community. And what's the report? Uh, that they are sleeping with the women in, uh, at, who were attending the that front of the tabernacle. And Eli is going to say at that point, this is not good. But, but these are the spiritual leaders in Israel. Think about that. Now these are the men that you're supposed to, to look up to and to be taught by. And they're committing great injustice and they are immoral men. Well, we should read this and we should be deeply grieved and outraged you can see there is a great injustice taking place in the land. But verse 17 has, has a note of encouragement. It says, thus the sin of the young man was very great before Yahweh. For the men spurned the offering of Yahweh. They're stealing from God and God is aware. The idea that these things are taking place immediately in the, in the eyes, in the face of God a huge affront to God, but God is also aware of it. And we need to, to trust that God sees and is aware of every single sin. Of every single sin that we commit and of every single sin that is committed against us. And this should actually bring us hope. Why? Uh, because the reality that when uh, in in normal everyday life, when a, when an authority figure sees sin and injustice taking place what do we expect when we when a police officer is seeing a a robbery uh taking place uh right when he is there right in front of his face what is that police officer going to do what what do we trust that that officer is going to do he's going to act uh, to remedy the situation right when uh, when children are fighting hypothetically speaking right when there is injustice that takes place uh, in the household of young children what is what does a kid normally do Who do they run to? They run to mom or they run to dad. They run to the nearest authority figure. And what expectation do they have? That because that authority has seen what is taking place, that they will also deal with it. And if we get hope from that reality that an authority figure, a human authority, sees an earthly injustice, should we not also get hope? That when a perfect heavenly authority, God himself, sees all of the injustices that we are experiencing, that he will act on them. And we must remember that God sees every single sin. And this, this seems really simple and basic, right? But oftentimes we skip right past it. We are prone to feel like God doesn't know, that God doesn't uh, see what we are going through or have any compassion towards us. We tend to, to think uh, that God does not see and that he does not care. Or if we do acknowledge that God sees what we are going through, what question comes to mind? If, if we are walking through uh, a severe injustice, what question comes to mind when we remember, wait, God sees? So God, if you are seeing what is happening, why, why are you allowing this to continue? Why do you not act immediately right now? To end my suffering and address what is going on. That's really the question that comes to mind and that we wrestle with in our hearts. But in our limited understanding and our selfish desires, we want immediate relief from the injustices in our lives. But in his infinite wisdom and in his perfect judgment, God does not always immediately deal with injustice. God's timetable is most often very different from our own. We want immediate results, but God is is working slowly. But we are called to remember that our great sovereign God is all-knowing and is aware of all of the sins of men, our own and those committed against us. And that's sobering. So when we when we're crying for injustice for those who sin against us, what should we also keep in mind? God also sees all of our sins. And trusting that he sees all sins and he will address them in his own timetable. But that kind of a trust that God sees all sins would also lead to a second kind of encouragement, a second trust. That would be that we should trust that God works in slow and silent ways. And this is seen in in a variety or numerous verses here. Did you notice as we were reading, the author continues to circle back around to this young man, this young boy, Samuel. And if you remember from earlier in uh, our study of Samuel, uh, Hannah was barren. She was childless and she prayed for a child and the Lord answered her prayer and blessed uh, her with a child, Samuel. Uh, And Hannah had vowed that if she was blessed with a child, she would dedicate that child to serve the Lord all of his days. And so chapter two, uh, the beginning portion, she did that. She came and she dedicated Samuel to serve the Lord. Uh, And so uh, we see the sons of Eli uh, committing sins and injustice, but God is working in the background. Look at these verses. The end of verse 11. But the young boy ministered to Yahweh before Eli the priest. Uh, Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before Yahweh as a young boy, girded with a linen ephod. The end of verse 21. The young boy Samuel grew before Yahweh. Verse 26. Now, the young boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with Yahweh and with men. And then we didn't read it initially, but look at the very beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the young boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh before Eli. the author continues to go back to this young man with subtle reminders. It's almost like the author is whispering to us, Hey, don't forget about Samuel. He's still there. Yes, there's injustice over here. But God is still at work. And the wording of verse 26 might have sounded familiar. It's like the highest commendation that a young man could receive. And it's almost identical to what is spoken about Jesus in Luke chapter 2 verse 52. That he was growing in the eyes and stature of both God and men. And God is at work even now preparing young Samuel for a future ministry. Uh, and the, in the the Hebrew, it, it's it's evident not only that God is preparing Samuel, but He's also throwing uh, Samuel alongside to, uh, the two sons of Eli for us to compare to them. The, the same word is used to describe those uh, men. Uh, the, the the young men in uh, verse uh, seventeen is the same word that's used to translate as boy uh, in uh, these verses concerning Samuel. And the the author wants us to compare uh, these individuals, known as a literary foil. Uh, and uh, in the middle of un- the unfaithfulness of Eli's sons, uh, God is still working. God has a man. Uh, God's man just hasn't hit puberty yet. God has been working slowly and silently in the background to prepare Samuel to be A judge, to be a prophet, to be uh, a priest in Israel. He would anoint uh, the first two kings of Israel. Samuel was going to grow up to be a king maker. But none of that is evident right now. All that's evident right now is there's a little boy serving in the tabernacle. And it seems like God is not at work. But I love what Matthew Henry says God is sometimes a God who is hidden. But he is never a God who is absent. There's a story of a a B-17 bombing run over a German city during World War II. And Nazi uh, anti-aircraft shells hit the gas tank uh, of uh, an Allied bomber. But there was no explosion. And the morning after the raid, the pilot went down uh, to ask uh, the crew chief for that shell uh, that had hit his bomber and didn't explode. Uh, And the crew chief says, well, there wasn't just one shell, there was 11. And the shells uh, had uh, been sent to the armors to be defused, but uh, then the intelligence services picked them up, uh, and the armors had found that within uh, the shells there were no explosive charges. They were empty, but one of them had a little rolled-up note written in Czech. And intelligence finally found somebody who was uh, able to, to translate it, and uh, in, uh, written in uh, Czechoslovakian was a little note that said, this is all that we can do for you now. So apparently there were these uh, you know, prisoners, POWs, who were compelled to work in a munitions plant for the Nazi war effort, And they didn't try to to blow up the plant or assassinate Hitler, but they did what they could. And what they could do, uh, what the Lord had called them to do in that instance, is just don't put explosive charges in the shells. Uh, It's not not big, not flashy, but did God use it to bring about salvation? Yes, he did. God is working quietly and unnoticed ways. This is how he most often works in the lives of his people. He doesn't blow a trumpet to announce what he's going to do for us. And he doesn't provide instant solutions. Right? We wish that God would cook with the microwave. Right? God, can you just you know, put, it, put the solution in, push the buttons, and then we get it in just a few minutes. But God says, no, no, I like to cook from scratch. Right? Everything, uh, he, he grows his own ingredients. Uh, he cooks it uh, uh, all uh, in the clean ways. No microwaves for him. But apart from this narrative of God's silent and slow ways, just think over the course of Scripture how many times God works this way, right? Uh, we were talking about Deuteronomy uh, in the equipping hour, uh, and and we looked at how long God was preparing Moses to be the leader of Israel. Moses spent 40 years growing up in Pharaoh's house, and then he committed a murder and had to flee Egypt. Then he was going and he was a shepherd for 40 more years in the land of Midian. And then when he's 80 years old, he's called to go back to Egypt and lead the exodus of two and a half million people out of Egypt and into the promised land. God was slowly preparing his man. We see this over and over again in Scripture. God works slowly and silently, but he is still working. And sometimes this uh, exasperates us, and sometimes this perplexes us. God, why do you allow this injustice to continue? Why do you allow me to continue to suffer at the hands of others? But again, this is where we need to take hope, and and we need to look and see how God has worked in the past uh, and trust Him in the present and in the future. Shouldn't we trust in His amazing ability to slowly and silently work behind the scenes in our lives and in our circumstances? Not knowing uh, what particular thing to point to and say, God is working here, here, and here. Sometimes we won't be able to point to such things. But what we need to do is we need to trust that he is working. That he is addressing things. He's preparing his people according to his plan and his purposes. We must trust that God sees the sins of all men and that he is working slowly and silently. Even when we cannot see it. Then a third encouragement here, verses nineteen through twenty-one, we should trust that God rewards the faithfulness of His people. In this portion, we see uh, the author return uh, back to uh, Samuel's mother, uh, returns back to uh, to, to uh, Hannah and her husband Elkanah, Samuel's parents, and uh, we are reminded uh, about. Hannah's uh, dedication, she continues to care for her son. And again, ladies, think about how hard that would be. Drop off your three-year-old at the tabernacle uh, and then uh, leave him uh, to serve the Lord. So she continues to come back with little uh, robes and and ephods for him, to little priest clothes. I'm sure he was really cute. All right, serving there in the Lord. Uh, And uh, she comes back continually. uh, And Eli the priest blesses samuel's parents he asks for for the lord to act and and, uh, to bless hannah for keeping her vow and keeping her commitment of dedicating her son to serve yahweh verse 21 says indeed yahweh visited hannah and she conceived and gave birth to birth to three sons and two daughters what a blessing And again, in the same way that we are to see a comparison between the two sons of Eli and young Samuel, we are also uh, to see a comparison between uh, Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, and uh, Eli as a father. One family uh, is being faithful to Yahweh, and they are being blessed. See, Elkanah and Hannah are in the process of coming from a a, uh, lowly, humble position, and they are being elevated because of their faithfulness. And Eli, the priest, uh, who actually is in a very high position in Israel, is in the process of being humbled and laid low. And this is actually exactly what uh, Hannah uh, prayed uh, and praised uh, concerning God's character. uh, Back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, this was uh, Hannah's uh, prayer, her praise. If you look at verse 6 with me. Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. And He exalts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's. And He set the world on them. He keeps the feet of His holy ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by power shall a man prevail. And so there are certain principles and truths that God has made evident to all. And they are a part of his common grace and he demonstrates them to all humanity. And one of those principles of wisdom uh, is the harvest principle found in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived that what a man uh, sows that also he will reap. Right. Whatever you plant, that's what is going to grow up. Uh, if you plant apple seeds, what are you going to get? An apple tree. If you plant an orange seed, what are you going to get? An orange tree. If you plant seeds of faithfulness and trust, you will reap the benefits in your life uh, and uh, in your relationship with God and in er- human relationships. Take, for instance, the example of marriage. Okay? Uh, as in every other human relationship, trust is earned by a track record of faithfulness. A husband trusts his wife with a credit card when she doesn't go on shopping sprees with it, right? When there's a track record of faithfulness. And a wife trusts her husband's decision-making when he has a track record of making wise decisions. But unfaithfulness in one of those areas makes it more difficult to build trust over the long haul, right? Right? If you plant seeds of faithfulness and obedience to God, he will be faithful to reward you both in this life and in the life to come. But this truth needs uh, to have a little asterisk next to it. We have to to take it in the correct framework and in the correct context. We have to to understand uh, that our obedience to God ultimately earns us nothing from God in the sense of our salvation that our good works bring us no closer to him uh, in relationship the only thing that earns favor with god uh, is his own grace bestowed upon us through faith in his son jesus that is the only hope that we have but then once we are in relationship with him then our obedience will bring forth blessing but obedience prior to faith in christ brings us nothing It's indeed that obedience prior to that is impossible. And one of the biggest themes in first and second Samuel is uh, the exaltation of the lowly and the humbling uh, of those uh, who wish to exalt ourselves. Uh, And so first Samuel uh, is a warning to all of us uh, that we are to walk humbly and faithfully before God. Uh, and if we exalt ourselves, he will humble us because that is what he delights to do. Uh, and if we humble ourselves, he will exalt us in his own time and in his own way. Uh, and uh, sometimes those of us as, as parents, uh, we have seen and observed within our kids a selective hearing, right? My, my oldest son loves to do that right now. Uh, what was that? And it, and it was great the other day. He was like, oh, well, I didn't hear that you said that. And I'm like, but you heard that I said something. And he's like. Oh, like it kind of dawned on him that he had uh, committed himself. uh. Sometimes kids have selective hearing, but we must not have selective theology. Uh, We have to uh, keep in mind that God will exalt the humble and he will humble those who exalt themselves. We, We like that truth for others, but we don't necessarily like that truth for ourselves. Right We pray for others to be humbled, right? That person on the freeway who cut you off uh, on the way to church today, uh, or that person who's slandering you at work, uh, or that neighbor uh, who is uh, talking about you behind your back, uh, or uh, that uh, family member that there's conflict with. We want others to be humbled, but we don't want to be humbled. But we need to see and trust Uh, in the truth uh, that what we see here that god will reward faithfulness in his people and we need to strive in the midst of any and all circumstances to glorify christ that needs to be our ambition no matter what others are doing we need to seek to glorify god to strive to be faithful trusting that he will reward us in his time and in his way And as we remind ourselves that God uh, sees and is aware of all that we're going through, as we remember that he is working in slow and silent ways, and as we strive to be faithful in the midst of those circumstances, then there will be hope that arises within our hearts. Additionally, it's even easier to trust uh, in these truths when we also keep in mind this fourth encouragement. Seen in verses 22 to 25. Uh, that we are to to trust that God's purposes will be accomplished. Now, in these verses, we see Eli uh, in conversation with his sons. Now, Eli is finally coming and uh, addressing uh, what is taking place in their lives and the injustices that they are uh, perpetrating upon the people of Israel what we see here is that the will of god is going to be the the sovereign selector of what happens in our lives that he allows things into our lives and he shields us from other things and ultimately his will and his purposes will be accomplished we see eli finally beginning to act and address the sins of his sons and he speaks to his sons but his sons don't listen they refuse to respond to their father. But, but how should we, we view and understand Eli's rebuke to his sons here? Ultimately, I, I would say that it has a little bit of bark, but it has no bite to it. Because who, who is the high priest? Eli, right? When he's addressing sins as a father to sons or as high priest to lower priests. What should he ultimately do? And the sins that are are going on, these are not like minor things. It's not like, hey, you didn't keep your elbows in when you were cutting the sacrifice and make sure you you fix your technique there. That's not what's happening. These are terrible sins. And ultimately, Eli doesn't, doesn't remove them from their position. He points... In verse twenty-five, and, and seeking to to appeal to them, he says, "If if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him, but if you sin against the Lord, there's no mediator who can intercede." And see, Eli understands that that the sins of his sons are not merely against the people of Israel, but they have sinned before God. And Eli, uh, ironically, is pointing to the need for a mediator between god and man who's going to be a faithful prophet priest and king the lord jesus christ and what's going to be really ironic is uh, that eli himself should be the mediator between his sons and god he himself should be the one uh, to lay hold of his sons and say sons you need to step down you need to face judgment there there needs to be consequences consequences for what you are doing and yet Eli failed to act as he should have with regard to his sons but we also gain additional insight so that Eli has made his his appeal he's not acted upon anything but we also see at the end of verse 25 why the two sons did not respond but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for Yahweh desired to put them to death. God was at work in these things. And when I was a, a toddler running around with my dad, he would play this game with me where he would, he would throw a really large couch pillow in front of me. And being a, a toddler, I couldn't even like step over it. So he'd throw the, the pillow in front of me, and I would just fall flat on it, face plant. And I would love that, running around, uh, because it was fun to to trip and stumble upon something soft and cushiony, right? And yet here, God has determined that these two sinful priests needed needed to fall. They needed to be humbled. But they were not going to land on a pillow. They're not going to land on something soft and cushiony. They are going to... They are going to fall, and God's judgment is then going to come down upon them. And their hardness of heart culminates in their judgment. Now, this, this is a strong statement to hear, right? For the Lord desired to put them to death. But as one commentator notes, this is not a truth about God that we like to hear it is a grave mistake to think that verse 25 allows the blame for the young men's hardness of heart to be placed on God their hardness was both their own choice and God's judgment on them for that choice it was like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the days of Moses Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart as well the one truth does not exclude the other See, God was not uh, hardening the heart of these two young men who had a deep and profound love for him. Okay, th- these were two young men who were uh, ruled and uh, being controlled by their own sinful desires. Whatever they wanted, they took. And so God, in judgment, says, okay, if that's what you want, then that's what I will allow to happen. That is the ultimate judgment. That's what we see in Romans 1. Uh, Those who are running away from God, the ultimate judgment is God has no, does not act anymore to pull them back from pursuing evil. He allows them uh, to run according to their own desires. And that's what we see happening here. And we can trust that God's purposes will always be accomplished. We can trust that God will bring about his will uh, and his purposes for blessing or for cursing, for salvation or for judgment. But at the very same time, we bear responsibility for our actions. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, God's will is going to be done. We are still responsible to act. And God's will ultimately is for all to look to him in repentance and faith. Now, Ezekiel eighteen thirty-two: God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-5, through five. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. See, Christ is that mediator that we need to, to put one hand upon our shoulders and one hand upon God the Father, and to bring us together, to bring reconciliation. And apart from Him, there is no hope. Some of us get get paralyzed and, and wrestling with trying to understand God's will. Is it God's will for me to be saved or to be judged? What's God's will for me? And really, we're not commanded to wrestle with that. We're called to respond to the mediator. Will you look to Jesus in faith? Will you respond to him? And your response to him is going to reveal a lot. That's what we are to wrestle with. Who is Jesus and will I trust in him and him alone for my forgiveness, for my reconciliation with a holy God that I have sinned against? We must trust that God's plans will be accomplished. His purposes will reign. And the question is, will we choose to align ourselves under those purposes or will we work against his purposes? Uh, Will we humble ourselves under God, or will we seek to exalt ourselves over him? One leads to blessing, one leads to cursing. But either way, whatever we choose, God's still going to be glorified. He's still going to act according to his purposes. They will be accomplished. We have to trust that that is what will happen. Then lastly, there's one more encouragement in verses 27 to 36. We are to trust that God's word brings judgment and justice. And in this, in this portion of the passage, we see this this unnamed prophet comes onto the scene. We're never even given his name. His only description is that he is a man of God. He comes and he speaks to Eli and he delivers a message directly from God in a "thus says the Lord" fashion. And it's interesting to note the order in which God addresses uh, what is taking place there uh, in Shiloh at the tabernacle. In verses 27 and 28, God points backwards. He points backwards to what he has given uh, to the Levites. And in doing this, he is recounting his gracious gift to the Levites. He has given them a priesthood. He has given them a, a responsibility. He has elevated them in Israel as his representatives, as his priests. And it was a, a simple, gracious act of God to bestow upon them this exalted status of priesthood. And in recollecting this previous grace, it always makes the, the present sin more heinous. Right, By pointing back to show how gracious God had been to the tribe of the Levites, what does that do with the sins of Hophni and Phinehas? It makes them all the worse because who are they despising? Who are they rejecting? Who are they stealing from? Not an unjust, evil, wicked God. They are rebelling against and stealing from a God who has given them and blessed them. That's what we see here. And after this rehearsal of the grace that has been bestowed upon them comes an accusation of wrong against Eli in verse 29. And if you look at verse 29, it says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my habitation and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering and of my people Israel? What's, what's sobering here is that the you, in verse 29, is, is plural. Okay, so Hophni and Phinehas are the, the sons who are committing, the, the, the immediate ones doing these unjust acts. But right now the man of God is speaking to their father. And he lumps Eli in with the sons in committing these injustices and of kicking the sacrifices, of kicking the grace of God. He includes Eli Eli has responsibility here Eli has not been faithful in his covenant responsibilities as a priest and this is prudent for every parent to pay close attention to Eli has chosen to honor his kids over honoring the Lord and this man of God comes and says that is sin that's rebellion Eli, you will bear the weight of it. As as parents, uh, there's there's times where our kids need discipline. They need to be told, you can't do this. And it's really hard to take a stance at times with children who are older, children who are adults. But, But God looks and says, if we back out of that responsibility, if we don't say what needs to be said, In certain instances, and if we have a responsibility to remove our children from a a certain position, if we choose to honor them rather than honor God, we are asking for the Lord's discipline upon ourselves. Easy for parents to elevate children over God. That is what is being addressed here in these charges against Eli and his sons. And then judgment is announced in verses 30 through 36. God is going to judge Eli and his lines. And and those are are strong words of judgment. Both of your sons are going to die on the same day. We're going to see that a little bit later here in 1 Samuel. And on a side note, God also says that he is going to raise up a faithful priest who's going to, to honor him, and to do what is in my heart and in my soul. There's questions about who this is. Some have said that it's Samuel. Some have said that it's Jesus. I don't think it's Jesus because I think it's Jesus is the my anointed at the end of verse 35. So Jesus is not going to walk before himself. I don't think it's Samuel. I think it's going to be something revealed later on in Scripture. I think it's going to be uh, Zadok. Uh, and his descendants and that's going to be talked about and revealed in jeremiah 33 and ezekiel 40 through 48 but god is looking forward to a, a a faithful priest in the future who will serve him and there's another principle here that those who honor god he will honor and those who despise him will be lightly esteemed and in god's economy No sin is going to go unpunished. No grievance will go unaddressed. He will make all things right. And we can rest assured that every sin uh, that is uh, committed by us or against us will be addressed in time. That is what we are to to trust in. Even as Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Several years ago, the the Volkswagen automobile company discovered this principle holds true even in the 21st century they were uh, embroiled in a a scandal uh, that was uh, publicly exposed uh, that they had rigged 11 million diesel engines uh, to cheat on emissions tests uh, by temporarily adjusting their performance Uh, and uh, their cheating was discovered by a research team uh, from the university of uh, west virginia uh, as they were conducting tests on vw vehicles and Uh, the researchers found that the cars emitted 40 times the permitted level of pollutants in actuality Uh, when when, uh, the news broke about the scandal the the volkswagen ceo uh stepped down although he personally acknowledged no guilt no wrongdoing i don't know this was happening Uh, and the the volkswagen stock price plummeted 30 percent and uh couple years after that they agreed to pay a fine listen to this 14.7 billion dollars sin has consequences you're going to try and lie and cover it up it will eventually come to light bw learned that lesson it's best not to cheat on those tests many of us still are learning that lesson. Hophni and Phineas are going to learn that lesson. Eli is going to learn that lesson. And we are called to, to look to the past and see those who have thought that they could get away with sin and injustice. They are all dealt with. God brings justice to this situation. The wicked are judged and the innocent are delivered from the wicked. And... Again, thinking through all that's, that's happening here, this, is the, this was a public sin committed by leaders in Israel, the religious leaders. Uh, and so it's, it's not a stretch to say that this would have had a significant impact upon the worship of Israel. Do you want to go worship at the tabernacle where the hypocritical priests serve? Is that what you guys want to do? No. Nobody wants to do that. So this was a, a huge issue unholy leaders cannot and do not promote holiness among the people and when god's chosen priests are engrossed in sin god's name is dragged through the mud and then out of nowhere comes this man of god with the word of god and by condemning and announcing judgment upon sin the word of god protects the people from beginning uh, being completely overcome by the snowballing effects of sin sin begets more sin And thus it is the word of God that brings judgment and justice to this situation. And it is the word of God that brings judgment and justice to situations of injustice in our own time. That's what we need to see. Uh, The solution to injustice is looking to uh, God, the creator, the the perfect, holy, righteous, just one, uh, to really understand what justice looks like. And to trust in him uh, for uh, bringing about perfect justice. One pastor called this uh, the merciful meddling of God's Word. Justice goes hand in hand uh, with deliverance from injustice. And when God's Word pronounces judgment, it also brings deliverance to the innocent. Uh, And this is done in two ways. First, it delivers from the suffering that they are experiencing because of the wicked. And then secondly, it serves as a warning to others not to follow in the footsteps of the wicked. As we look at the the sins of Eli and his sons in this narrative, it's easy to view their sins as greater than our own, as if they were uh, to a greater level of depravity. It's kind of thinking, well, I would never do such things. Well, but remember, what was the first thing that the man of God came and addressed? When when he came and he spoke to Eli, what's the first thing? He said, you have uh, kicked at. Uh, and frowned upon and despised the grace of God in your lives. You have not appreciated what God has done for you and for your whole uh, tribe and clan and family, the Levites. The greatest sin of Eli, as well as the greatest sin that we can commit, is the rejection of God's grace, uh, of stomping upon it, uh, of taking the, the gracious gift of God, what he has given to us that we have not deserved, and we stomp on it. We have no appreciation for it. And that's what we see here. An exhortation not to take the, the grace of God for granted. Not to take the, the grace of God extended to us through his son Jesus for uh, as if we deserve it. But understanding that we have deserved only God's wrath. Only his judgment. If we cry for justice, we better be careful. But God has been gracious to us and he calls us to rest in his grace uh, that we would always be thankful and grateful for it and also that we would begin to live in light of that grace that we would be uh, serving and loving and caring for others listen to titus 2 verses 11 to 14 for the grace of god speaking about christ himself the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's what we need to to trust in and not frown upon or stomp on. Don't stomp on the grace of God that he has given to you in his son. And look to God's word as a a source of hope in the midst of injustice. It's God's word that helps us to rightly identify and understand sin, to rightly understand justice. And ultimately, we need to trust that every single human sin is going to be judged either at the cross of Christ or at the great white throne judgment. Every single sin will be addressed in its time. The the world around us bemoans and and grieves the injustice that it sees. Uh, And rightly so. We should grieve about the injustice that we see in our society and and in our lives. But we have something that the world doesn't have. We have a, a hope and a trust that all things will be made right in the future. And the world says we have to make everything right right now. But that's impossible. And that just makes you more and more angry as you strive to do what only God is able to do in bringing justice to the world. So we are to rest in uh, the truth of God's word, bringing justice and judgment. And we must uh, warn others about uh, the justice and judgment that God's word brings, but also point them to the grace of God that is offered to them in Christ. That way they don't have to be consumed with seeking to right all of the wrongs in the world, that they can rest in Christ. We see these five encouragements in this passage this morning. And we are to trust that God sees the sins of all men. We are to trust that God works in slow and silent ways, that God rewards faithfulness in his people, that God's purposes will be accomplished, and that God's word brings judgment and justice we have to keep these truths in mind and if we begin to to pull all of these truths together uh, we will be able to have peace and entrust ourselves to a holy and righteous god even when facing injustice in our own lives and in society before his appointment as a supreme court justice horace gray once presided over a case where a man was justly charged But through a technicality, Gray was obligated to release this man. But as he released this man, he addressed him with these words. This is the judge. He says, I believe that you are guilty and would wish to condemn you severely. But through a petty technicality, I am obliged to discharge you. I know you are guilty and so do you. And I wish you to remember that one day you will pass before a better and wiser judge when you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. That judge knew and understood that even though this man who was guilty was going to be set free, things would eventually be dealt with. That judge was entrusting himself and that man an infinitely wiser and better judge. He had an eternal perspective when facing injustice. And my hope and prayer is that we would have that same type of eternal perspective as we experience and see injustice in our own lives. Amen.